the way I think about leadership is it includes three key qualities. Um, one of them is you have this ability to zoom in and out of big picture strategy and minutia. I think that's quite important. Hunger to learn. I think it's always important from colleagues, mentors, people, books, what have you. And then finally, it's about creating an atmosphere for other leaders to grow. And this is Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. My day job is running TigerCom, a firm that counsels companies that are helping move the U.S. economy onto a more sustainable footing. I get to meet the people who are succeeding at building, funding, or advising the most successful companies in your sectors. So each show, we try to bring you usable insights from these leaders so you can apply them to the business of running your business. Hello, Clean Techers, and welcome back to another episode of Scaling Clean. As listeners know, our show is tightly focused on interviewing CEOs to glean usable best practices on tips on how to build, run, and lead companies. One of the things I'm fascinated by are the backgrounds of our guests. Some are serial entrepreneurs, some come from finance, others are power sector veterans, and some, like my guest today, have a very heavy technical background. Mahesh Kunduru is the former CEO and now board chair of Procep. It's a global energy services company focused on water treatment and chemical efficiency. Mahesh's company is private equity financed with operations and subsidiaries in four regions around the world. He's also CEO of Momentum Technologies, which is a company that processes critical minerals and metals into high purity materials. It's got a heavy initial focus on lithium battery recycling. Mahesh, welcome to the show. Mike, thank you for having me on. Good. And I should note, you and I are both fellow members of the Clean Tech Leaders Roundtable, or CTLR as it's called for short. And as CTLR's first members, what they call me, I encourage our listeners to join the organization. CTLR is the place you can go to compare notes with peers and network for deals. So Mahesh, let's start with your background. Would you summarize your career to date as a company leader? Mike, sure. Uh, Look, I've been quite fortunate to be a company leader for over 10 years now. The last five to six years as a CEO and prior to that as a COO and CFO for about three to four years. I mean, rather than uh, completely go to the uh, from the beginning, I want to focus uh, on my last 10 to 15 years as, as a leader, since that's the question. So I, the way to characterize my career is that it's so far been in primarily technology growth companies as the companies have scaled from proof of concept to commercialization across the world. And if you were to ask me what I'm proud of uh, as a leader and, and and how to summarize my career, I would point to two main things the team and I have achieved in this time frame. Item one is that key team members and colleagues have grown tremendously in terms of their leadership capabilities and achievements. Uh, an example is one of my colleagues has is now the CEO of Procep that I've known for 10 years. We work together. I'm very proud to see that. Another colleague is going to become the CTO of a spin-off, another person who I've worked with for 10 years. So it's it's, it's a tremendous pleasure to see people grow in their careers alongside mine. And the second category uh, that I'd like to highlight 
to summarize my career is that we as a team have successfully taken three ideas from ideation to commercialization, including two potential spin-off opportunities, uh, which all have led to increase in enterprise value. So that, I think, to me, is a pretty good way to summarize my uh, uh, the later part of my career, primarily in a leadership role. Let's say we have a time machine. We go back in time and videotape you when you were the first time you were somebody's boss. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to videotape you now as someone who leads teams. And we put the, the, this footage next to each other on a split screen. And you and I watch together. What differences are we going to notice then versus now? So, you know, I'd like to focus a little bit on um, probably opportunities missed the first time I was asked to be a supervisor. Uh, I remember when I had freshly come out of my postdoc opportunity from the Oak Ridge National Lab, I took the role of a, at a small business that was commercializing new technologies and material science. And I was uh, given the opportunity to manage a, a couple of uh, you know pretty smart in, uh, engineers. Rather than focusing on mistakes, maybe, like I said earlier, it's, it's important for me to point out that I really did not have an opportunity to get any formal training as a supervisor, manager, mm. leader. Uh, to me, important things like building relationships with people, uh, setting goals, and, and also understanding uh, people's career aspirations all of those I would have helped if somebody pointed those out to me and now why they were important. So definitely that's a regret. Um, and fast forward to, I don't know, 20 years now, uh, and now that I've become a senior executive in the last decade, I think if, if since I didn't have any formal training or informal training, um, what I've noticed that it's in a fast-paced environment, which typically is what you see in growth companies, uh, I tend to become very goal and task oriented, um, at least in the, in the beginning, without taking the time to understand capabilities and aspirations of people. So it needs to be the other way around, I think, right? So that's definitely a lesson learned uh, as I have grown and matured, hopefully, as, as a leader. Isn't it interesting? I I would love to at some point, I, I don't know how one would do this, but just survey the entire body of people in this country who supervise somebody else and just see what percentage of them got any training on how to do it well. Like, you know, management's a skill, leadership's a skill. And I got, I'm like you, I got zero training and I showed all the effects of being undertrained when I first started. It would be interesting. I, I bet I bet we'd be at 10 or 15% of people who supervise somebody else and actually get training on how to do it right out of the box. But it's, um, it, it definitely is a place where I, I share your experience. Let me ask you, as a researcher by training, did you find transitioning to being a manager challenging? Were there things in your research background that might have actually helped you become a successful manager? Yeah, again, great question. I think I addressed a part of that in the earlier question you asked in terms of not having formal training as a researcher. You know, one thing that you do as a PhD researcher with the crux of your PhD student life 
involves around these ideas, right? You have a hypothesis, you plan around the hypothesis on how to prove it, you then interpret and communicate the results, and then it turns back into a feedback loop, right? On how you make things better, or you try to do something new. So to be honest, and I started off doing my PhD a little bit earlier than most people, um, and I graduated a little bit earlier than most people, but I did not have the awareness to categorize the skill set that you develop as a researcher in the way I just did to you, right, at the time. So it took me probably a few years to figure that out. And so that's something um, that I wish I was a little bit more self-aware about uh, at that time. So in addition to, I think, so, so again, to answer your question, yes, having a research background helps you be analytical and, and have this feedback loop that I described for new ideas. However, I think it's always good if, if you're not naturally empathetic and understand what it means to be a leader to have formal training, um, either by example or actually attending coursework um, uh, in, in really learning the best practices to be an effective leader. Tell me about mentors. Who were your big mentors and what did you learn from them? Yeah, another great question. This is something that I tell people who uh, come to me for mentorship myself is everybody should have, uh, and my wife kind of uh, makes fun of me, I call it, everybody should have a group of rabbi, as I call them, right, to to guide you into your, in your professional life and, and probably in your personal life as well. And, and all, a lot of us have them, maybe informally. Um, I think in a professional setting, it's good to have it uh, formalized, in my view, anyway, that's been effective for me. So in my career, I've been fortunate to have uh, quite a few people who have looked out for me, uh, starting with my all the way back from my PhD thesis advisor, uh, Professor Stephen Chuang from the University of Akron. Uh, let me focus maybe on, on a couple of people that have helped me be leaders, sorry, helped me be an effective leader in the last 10, 15 years of my career, probably more um, reflective of the topic we're speaking about here. The way I think about leadership is it includes three key qualities. Um, one of them is you have this ability to zoom in and out of big picture strategy and minutia. I think that's quite important. Hunger to learn. I think it's always important from colleagues, mentors, people, books, what have you. And then finally, it's about creating an atmosphere for other leaders to grow. So if I think about leadership in those three uh, categories or along those three categories, two people come to mind who have helped me uh, develop along those lines. Uh, their names are Patrick McCarthy and Nicole Miles. Let me say a sentence or two about them. So Patrick uh, was a proven leader uh, in, in the energy industry for about five decades and I was fortunate to have him as uh, the board chair at Procept, and he was just just fantastic in terms of at least two of those categories. One is just this amazing ability to zoom in and out of big picture and minutiae or detail, mm. um, and he's also always hungry to learn, and he's also just very uh, calm about just allowing things to settle and and come to you know prudent decision making. So it's, I, I continue to keep him in my life for, for a variety of reasons. And Nicole Miles is interesting. Nicole Miles is, was uh, the head of HR for Procep, and she, I hired her. And she kind of became a reverse mentor to me in terms of really helping nice. me see 
helping me see how I need to really be empathetic about who I work with. Uh, it was kind of there, but you really need to be explicitly watching out for that. Um, and you really need to create an atmosphere where you know other people feel comfortable to grow, which is like allow them to make mistakes, come with a framework for them to uh, correct them, and and you know just make them feel like you know they are growing um, and they're in a safe atmosphere to grow. Tell me about your movement into clean economy. Why did you do it? What's kept you here? Sure. Mike, so this is an interesting question, right? We are in an era, especially the last 20 years, where there's terminology that is used that has, I believe, led to some polarization in the world, right? So I get a little bit uncomfortable when people use terms that could lead to polarization. So the way I think about the industry I'm, well, I would like to be in and I've been in is generally I like to be in a mission-driven industry, and it's quite important to me. I also want to acknowledge that certain definitions as clean are probably not so clear, right? Because we live in such an incredibly interconnected world and economy that oftentimes it's very hard to pinpoint, you know, where a value chain for a product that you call clean or dirty starts or ends, right? It's, it's very complicated. It's not very clear. So given that I just I'm very uncomfortable using terms like that I'm, I'm happy for other people to categorize it the way I like to think about it is I'm in a mission of an industry where I like to advance the standard of living of humankind uh, in a way that doesn't uh, negatively affect humankind animal kind and, and the earth we live in right and maybe maybe I'm, I'm coming across as very apolitical but I think that's just the world that I want to live in um so again, just coming back to me, your question was about when did I start? I'd like to think I started off in the very beginning because my PhD thesis was on emissions control that come out of an automobile engine. So I designed and understood a potential material that helps you clean stuff that comes out of car exhaust. So so I've been fortunate enough to be in an in industry where I, I, I think... Uh, is very mission driven. You quit your job tomorrow. You become a lecturer at a local business school. Your first lecture is on the role of the effective CEO. It's different mm -hmm. components and why they matter. What will you tell your students? Yeah, look, great question. And I want to be specific to my experience as a CEO and a leader, right? So I guess the majority of my career has been in technology growth stage companies that uh, are scaling very specifically in material science, chemistry, chemical engineering. So my belief is, again, just to clarify, I also had a role as a leader at a company that was having a, a turnaround in a financial perspective as well. But primarily, I think the role of a CEO at companies that are scaling technology from proof of concept to commercial and maybe later profit generation is, is a different kind of role for a CEO in my experience, and that's my own experience I can share. I think at an early stage, you're primarily focused on this proof of concept of commercialization angle. The role of CEO to me is boiled down to a few bullet points. One is, number one, making sure there's enough cash, always. Number two, set the culture. And number three, be comfortable with risk-taking. I can, I can expand on that as needed. Um, I'll leave it there for now. 
And then once it has reached profitability, I think the role changes into more of a goal setter, training and retention of talent, and culture continues to be important, I think. So given my experience in companies at those two stages, that's how I would characterize the role of a CEO. What advice would you have for young company leaders that are taking the helm of a company for their first time? A lot of people get pigeonholed into being very conservative in early stage startups. I think um, I, I read an article recently that characterized it very appropriately. I think you need to match the ambition of the company with the addressable market you're seeking. Right. So if the addressable market is huge, keep your ambitions huge as well. And, and don't let anybody deter you from doing that. Obviously, that comes with some pragmatism where you need to have enough capital to go to go pursue those big ambitions. However, if you don't set the ambition, the capital will not follow, right? So that would be my my advice. Uh, do not be afraid to set the ambitions high. And and I think the rest will follow, assuming you know everything else that I described uh, uh, falls into place. This is among my favorite questions, and we've started asking this as the episodes have gone on. Do you have practices, little or small, habits, that you have found are really effective at keeping you high performing in your role of CEO? And we've heard a range of answers. We've had some guests tell us, I go to the opera. Some say, I get up at five o'clock in the morning and I work out. Some say, I need a weekend to a month to work on old cars. It can be anything. Is there something that Mahesh Kunduru does to keep Mahesh Kunduru performing at a high level in his role as a CEO? Well, a great question. And like you said, everybody has their own uh, views on this and their own habits, right? And whatever makes you tick, you should pursue. I am a big believer in a wholesome well-being. Uh, in fact, that got uh, re-emphasized during COVID, as you can imagine, for a lot of people. Uh, fortunately for me, it started off uh, back in the day of my PhD lab work. Uh, I had a couple of very... Uh, great well great friends and colleagues who taught me the importance of taking care of your body so they used to go to the gym all the way in akron ohio and i followed them uh, just to you know figure out what this means i never formally or physically worked out in a structured manner growing up until maybe i was 21. so that set the stage for me although at that time i was not nutritionally savvy if you say so um i was I was introduced to the physical well-being aspect of things pretty early, which was great. That stuck with me until this day. Soon, I combined that with mental well-being due to friends and family around me and realized it's quite important. So I've been fortunate that it's become a habit. And it's even more important now. And if I may add, my wife is the CEO of also a public company. So you can imagine that with, with that and we have two young kids, that a wholesome well-being becomes all the more <laughs> can, important. Oh, oh my goodness! The ch- the conversations about who's going to pick up the kids, I can just hear them in your house. That that's um, who the who's busier today conversation. I know that one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think it helps us focus more on well-being, as you can imagine, uh, pursuing these lifestyles in careers. You know, they come with their own characteristics that you've got to be able to manage and smoothen these ups and downs. So big believers in wholesome 
well-being, physical and mental. So physically, I try to be uh, working out five days a week, I would say. I, I run a couple of days a week and then I, I have a stationary bike at home. Uh, and then I started doing yoga and meditation maybe about six, seven years ago. I need to be better at it, to be honest, but I am a big believer in that. Uh, in fact, at one point at Procep, I brought in a yoga mat to work just before COVID and said, I'm going to come to work in the first 15 minutes. I'm going to lie down and meditate and everybody's welcome to take that mat and use it as possible. So I think nice. Uh, nice. It's, it's very it's very important to take care of yourself in a wholesome way and 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 it's become a habit and my wife's the same way so we've been fortunate and i um and i hope we continue to do that good hiring cited almost consistently as one of the hardest parts of the job what have you learned about making good hires very important to hire right and to realize when you've not hired right and and make the correction and especially i think it's very important in companies when you're scaling the reason is because you're trying to scale a peak figuratively that is just quite challenging by itself. And if you don't have alignment with the team as you're trying to scale these, this peak, it's going to be even more challenging and frustrating. So you don't want that, I think. So fortunately for me in, in the two leadership roles that I have undertaken so far, I've inherited strong stellar colleagues so the, 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 the challenge then is if you inherit colleagues that are already quite smart, it's then a question of gaining their trust, right? So to me, mm. that became uh, uh, an exercise in itself. And that's where I think one of the mentors that I mentioned, Nicole, helped me quite a bit. And again, there is no one way to gain trust, right? I've, I've, uh, you, the way I tell this to people is you have to, at a cellular level in your body, want your colleagues to do well right? If you have that in you, then all your actions will come through that shows them how you can earn their trust. Uh, the tr earning trust could be going to the field one day and just kind of learning and what the every person is doing, right? And obviously, it may be physically impossible to do every function, but you know, whatever functions you can afford to do that, I think it's great to do as one way to gain trust. Um, so anyway, so to me, it was more about that. I've, I've obviously had my share of hiring um, challenges as well. One thing I'll tell people is it's hard to be, it's hard to bat 1,000 all the time, okay? So just just know that. And I've found interview interviews and interview questions whole, only help marginally, right? Because, you know, it, it's a, it's a it's finite... interesting. It's a finite, discrete time you're, you're with this person. The way I've thought about this is, no matter how great a candidate has been in the prior career segment before joining your company, there is no guarantee that that performance will be replicated in the environment you're there coming into. Because to me, it's up to you to create an atmosphere where this person will thrive. And almost always the environment will be different, right? So I think then you're looking for qualities in people where, you know, where they can thrive and be risk-taking and can adjust. And it's hard to, to know this in a discrete amount of time. So I've relied on, on references a lot. If you, if you get references from people you trust and you, you describe the position, it helps. 
And look, I've made quite a few challenging hires that didn't work out. And in some cases, I kept them on longer than I wanted to. So I think it's a mixed bag. So to me, interviews and interview questions are just a discrete part and may not be that revealing. I think it's a question of preferences, trial and error sometimes, and, and sometimes it's gut feeling too. So to me, it's not an exact science. Figure out what's worked for you and, and be, be ready to correct course if you feel like it's, it's not working out. Let's go to that. What's your advice on firing people? Yeah, look, again, a very interesting and important question. I think in my, in my experience, in a majority of cases, unless there is misbehavior, right, or unethical behavior, the manager is almost always responsible for putting the right person in the right place and the right role, right? So if, if that's the assumption, then the manager has to take responsibility if a person doesn't work out, right? Um, and, and then once you made the decision as a manager, it's really important that you're empathetic for the person you're letting go, right? Because the message you're giving is, unless, of course, it's an unethical behavior, an unacceptable behavior, it's your responsibility that you haven't either created the atmosphere or put the right person in the right place. You said, look, you are going to be successful in your life. Unfortunately, this is not the place for it because of something I've done and I've created. So you want to leave this person with enough confidence to go out in the world and thrive career-wise and, and, and find a successful career. So you got to be careful in how you phrase that and you got to be methodical and empathetic about it. I mean, that's the best advice I can give. I know it's hard because in almost all these cases, it's very emotional on both sides and, 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 and you tend to go off track. And, you know, I try to fight a lot of that every day if I do it. But uh, yeah, that's the advice I would give you. Be, be empathetic, focus on yourself and as a manager, maybe what you could have done better and try to give the person confidence that they can go and have a good career outside in the world. We'd like to close with two broad questions. Looking back so far, would you say that success as a company leader is more based on what you choose not to do, prioritization, or what you choose to do? Yeah, look, uh, important and tough question, and there's no right one right answer, as you probably know. I'll just go with my experience. In my experience, I believe we were successful in growing technology companies from concept to commercialization because of three things. One is gaining trust of clients and colleagues, being rigorous with expectations, and helping folks reach their goals you know, within, within what you can control, right? So if I categorize in those, in those uh, three bullets, then I would say naturally for me, success has been on what we have done. We have done right anyway. Last question. Has your work to date left you as a climate optimist or a climate pessimist? Yeah, again, I think I'll go back to one of my answers to your earlier questions, which is I get the commentary and opinions going on in the world on the climate and environment. These are important conversations to have. Um, and as I said earlier, I want to think of my role of, and my contribution in the role as someone that can hopefully positively influence the standard of living of humankind. And, and I'd like to think the world is filled with people that want to do the right things for their families, friends, and the environment, right? So I think the world is full of these people. So if, if that's the case, uh, it's important to focus on these things, in my opinion, rather than be polarized and using terms that polarize people. So 
I am an optimist, and so I would say the world by large has made tremendous strides in the last 50, in the last 100 years in advancing the standard of living of humankind, taking care of uh, animal species, taking care of, uh, you know, all other living species in the world. And I think the world is of a better off place in 2023 than it was 100 years ago. I think we can agree on several of these categories. So I am hoping and I'm very optimistic that these challenges will continue. And I think we will have the right people addressing the right way. And I'm positive in the next 25, 50, 100 years, everybody will be in a better position in terms of the, the, the categories that I described. So I'm an optimist overall. Gotcha. Mahesh, it has been a pleasure talking with you. I, I just, I'm fascinated by your background. I think you may have more degrees than anyone else we've interviewed so far. <laughs> I would not want to be trying to work off your student debt, that's for sure. Um, but uh, anyway, I, I just really appreciate the work you're doing in water, in critical minerals. I, it's crucial stuff. So thanks for what you're doing and thanks for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Mike, thanks again. I appreciate uh, your time. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. Our producer is Brian Mendes. If you like what you hear on Scaling Clean episodes, we'd appreciate it if you can give us a five-star rating and leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you all the best in your clean tech endeavors.